out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist, songwriter and vocalist. It is the one and only Zal Clemenson, who I spoke to very very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. One time member and guitarist of the um, sensational Alex Harvey band as well as lots of other musical combos. He started life with a band, well various bands, but also was in Tear Gas and they became part of the Alex Harvey and the sensational Alex Harvey band and has recently been working on another project which has just come out this week or last week. It's Orphans of the Ash. They have a single that's out on Bandcamp. Um, Yes, it is Orphans of the Ash. The single's titled Last Train Home with hopefully an album coming out. And also I found out that... um, Zell is writing a novel and is hopefully getting towards the final draft. That should be coming out as well, um, probably in the next year. But you're going to find out much more about all this as um, as the interview progresses. So, um, yes, after several minutes of casual chat, which we get edited out, I am I reminded um, Zell slightly of um, the fact that he'd said he was... Um, a few years ago, I got in touch with him and he said, no, he's not going to do any more interviews and he's given up music. And I just said, what has happened? And this was his response. Take it away. Well, it was a kind of offshoot of the the, <laughs> the ashes of uh, Thin Dogs, which was a band that... Um, came about really from various circumstances um, a few years ago. I can't remember exactly when, 2015, 16, something like that. Yes. Um, and I'd been living, I'd, I'd, my partner and I had moved out to Cyprus. She had she had gone to Cyprus because of her job and they wanted to take us out there. So we sort of moved out there for a few years. And... Um, during that time, I'd went through a kind of a bad psychological kind of a breakdown, which wasn't really, um, which wasn't really too too good to be honest. And it was at that moment that I kind of, because I hadn't really played the guitar, I put the guitar down. I never play the guitar, and I'm not, you know, working professionally. Let's say, and I don't. It's not really a hobby that I can pick up and plonk about on. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I thought, yeah, I thought at that time when I was having this sort of bit of a bad time. I thought, well, let's just see what happens. I'll pick up the guitar and just see where we go. And it was more like just a form of therapy than anything else uh, to see what would come out of it. And yes. as it happens, I just uh, ideas just came out. Ideas started to flow. I just got back into the whole idea of playing the guitar, playing riffs, you know, writing songs, getting the lyrics, and that kind of escalated to the point where it. It ended up as a band, you know. It ended up in a, the shape of a band called Thin Dogs, right? Um, which, you know, we, we we put an album together. We got an album out rather hurriedly. Um, production was a little bit compromised, and it didn't really sound that great. But the energy in the songs, I knew were there, and I knew there was a good sort of quality of songwriting as well. Yeah, but. Um, Sadly, the chemistry of the band began to 
began to uh, disintegrate, and uh, it didn't really it didn't really go much further because of that. So, Orphans of the Ash really is the Orphans of the Ash. <laughs> Willie and I, Willie was the other guitar player in Sin Dogs, and um, him and I had a, an eye on doing something completely, completely not completely different, but something that was a bit more guitar, a bit more raw. More, more basic sort of approach rather than having keyboards on top of everything. So we decided to just call it a day with Thin Dogs, and 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 here we are. We've just kind of kept ourselves working away over, you know, with the pandemic. Obviously, it was a problem, um, but um, we managed to um, get things back on track in the last few months since since the lockdown's been lifted, and we've been working on some new songs and. And trying to work towards an album, uh, which we'll probably have, I would think, ready maybe the first quarter of next year. Yes, because it's a ferocious sound you've got on this one, haven't you? It's um, it's quite meaty. And um, are you listening? Are you talking about orphans or are you talking about syndogs? I'm talking about orphans. The last train. Oh, last home. train. The last train home. Yeah, yeah, that was a piece of music that Willie had already written, um, and just you know, he lives in Glasgow. I live in Yorkshire, so we kind of. I kind of commute up there every so often to um, to, to to get some work done, and then he had this little piece of music just lying around, and um, and I thought, yeah, I like it, I like it a lot, and I started to try and get some lyrics for it, and it was the uh, it was that time when the, when the in the news, the Sarah Sarah Everard case was quite prominent in the news, and it kind of struck a chord with me, the whole idea of. Um, women being threatened and women being attacked and raped and murdered and it just I thought to myself, yeah, yeah, let's 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 try and get some sort of some kind of message across here, you know, and that was that was the kind of catalyst for the for the lyric. Yes. And yes, it all, I guess I did wonder when I was listening to it and I'm wondering, you mm. know, with with the current thing and now we've got some other horrendous thing happening, spiking at nightclubs and bars yeah. and, and stuff like that. And then, you know, I kind of Yes, and when listening to this, I think, oh, yeah, that's quite interesting. And, um, yeah, so it's, it, it, yes, I just, I hadn't realised it was that, you know, a, a, such a direct um, kind well, of... Yeah, well, I mean, it was, a, you know, it was just because it was such a prominent thing in the news and, and there was a whole, quite a lot of people getting kind of upset about it all. So I just thought, yeah, let's, let's see if we can uh, put something out there that maybe... You know, makes people aware or changes people's attitudes. You know, men's attitudes. I guess what I'm talking about. Yes. But, yeah. Because your your musical repertoire and your ability to make different sonic soundscapes is quite extraordinary. Because this is it's such a kind of um, I wouldn't say it's new metal, but it is a really kind of a striking <laughs> sound, isn't it? Which really reminds me of the, you know the bands that came along. Because I I mean I grew up you know I suppose I was born in the mid '60s, so. Heavy metal was yeah. quite a thing in the seventies and then the eighties. With you know, from Status yeah. Quo, the Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, and then Motorhead was my kind of you know that rock period. I mean, I do like a lot of other music yeah. as well, but um, yeah. there was that kind of element to my kind of musical kind of palette, I suppose. So when I heard that kind of your, yeah. the sound that you're creating with this, it's it's kind of quite raw, isn't it? But also you know has that sort of yeah. kind of modern touch of production with it. Yeah, yeah, that's it's interesting. You call it new metal. I'm not quite sure what what, what that sort of falls into, but yeah, it was uh, when when I when I started playing again, and and Sin Dogs came along. I was very much um, I'd almost gone full circle back to my roots when I started it, 
playing guitar in, in a band called Tear Gas, which was in Glasgow. Uh, the band eventually became the Alex Harvey Band. And um, and that was very much a metal band, you know, for that, well, late 60s, 70s. So it was, it was more the Deep Purple, Zeppelin, you know, those were the those were your sort of heroes and those were the Bass Sabbath, I guess, as well. Um, so, as I say, with, with, with Thin Dogs, I wanted to kind of get back to that more rock metal um it's the kind of style of guitar playing that comes very naturally to me. Um, you know, I don't, I don't find any difficulty in sort of playing in that genre, if you want to call it that. And um, so it was it's something I feel quite comfortable playing. And it's most of the guitar ideas, riffs, and stuff that I come up with tend to fall into that kind of ballpark. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's something you kind of. You sort of fall into naturally. Yes, because with Tear Gas, you're, you, you know, the first band, that was very much that sort of bridge in the sort of period from the 60s to the 70s, wasn't yeah. it? That was that kind of, not a tricky period because obviously, you know, everything kind of merges, but there was definitely a, a sense, was. there was definitely a sense that one chapter of modern music, and, and let's face it, in 64, yeah. people didn't know how, how long modern music would last, a bit like rap music that came along in the 80s. I remember people thinking, no, this isn't going to last. And yeah. it's like, I'm not sure. I think, I think it's going to, I think it might last. So when you, when you formed, you know, Tear Gas, was that mm. kind of with, with the sort of one eye on things like Cream and Hendrix and, you know, guitarists yeah, and, and Jeff was, Beck like was. that? Yeah, I mean, I started playing when I was in school and we put a band together as, as schoolboys. We were just it's still at school when we had a band called the Bow Weevils and they were heavily influenced by black American soul music, um, which was very prominent in Glasgow at that time as a real big black so, you know, Joe Tex, all that kind of thing, the Stacks, labels, Tamla, I guess, as well. So we were, it was, and there was very much, kind of like what you said, there was a transition between those kind of, that kind of music and the bands that were all playing that kind of music uh, to a dance audience, effectively. People were coming to a gig, effectively, to dance to the band. Yes. Um, and then there came this point where we sort of transitioned into as you say, the more rock, hippie element, uh, prog rock element came into it. And then you ended up with people saying, well, we can't dance to your music. And I'll say, well, no, it's not, you're not supposed to dance to it. You know? <laughs> and so there was a kind of an odd sort of transition there of one minute people were dancing to your stuff and then when tear gas came along, they were all sitting cross-legged on the floor in front of you. Yes. Um, and that was the kind of, as you say, it was a, it was a, a move away from... from from one style of music to another. Yes, I mean, I also often think because, because I mean, you were, yeah, you were born slightly a couple of years after people like, I suppose David Bowie and Lemmy. You were kind of my two of mm. those people that mm. I've, I've followed all my life, I suppose. And it was kind mm. of interesting because when they talk about their kind of early influences, it's always Little Richard and Buddy Buddy mm -hmm. Holly and Eric. Um, no, not Eric. Um, Eddie Cochran and and um, yeah, th those kind of, th yeah. those kind of characters yeah, are the ones yeah. that everyone loved at that time, didn't they? Yeah, that's the music I heard as a kid when I was a young teenager. I heard Bill Haley and the Comets and, and Eddie Cochran and, and Buddy Holly, and you just heard the guitar sound. And of course, Chuck Berry. You know, once you got an earful of Chuck Berry, it was like, wow. You know, that's what that's what I want to do. I want to try and make that noise. Yes. And um, and of course, everybody's. I mean, Chuck Berry, for me, laid down the foundations of what just about every rock band ended up playing, you know, that style, playing in fifths, 
thing and that kind of R and D, you know, style of playing. Yeah, you can still hear it. You still hear it. You've heard it. You've heard it throughout the, the decades, really, of, of bands that just really more or less play in the same style as Chuck Berry plays. And was ACDC, for example? Yes, absolutely. Um, did you? I mean, were you from quite a, a musical family at all? Did you? Did you sort of have that kind of in the background? No, no, no. My dad could sing really nicely. My mum could sing really nicely, and they both sang well. When there was a party going, and you know, and there was a kind of a family get together, and, and people. There was a lot of music around, though. And the music, we had a big, big radiogram, one of the giant radiograms with seventy-eight records sort of logged there and sort of stacked on either side and it was in the lounge. And, and I, I was brought up listening to Doris Day and Frank Sinatra and uh, Bing Crosby and, and, you know, all those kind of crooners and, and, and artists. My dad was a real big fan of, of uh, Doris Day. Excellent. And so, yeah, that was the kind of music I heard as a child, 10-year-old. So on when I went to Australia, we we went out to Australia when I was a kid and lived there for three and a half years. And that's when I first heard Elvis Presley. Right. And Buddy Holly and people like that. So I came back, back to Glasgow when I was about 11, 12. And, and that's kind of weird when I started to start to listen and uh, get involved and, and trying to trying to be a, you know, like a musician to play guitar and learn how to play guitar. Yes, because you would have been the perfect age of seeing the whole, you know, I do love, I do find the 60s fascinating, but, you know, that kind of the whole transition from the first Beatles albums and the Stones yeah. and the Kinks, and then you saw the transition into that kind of optimistic and slightly naive world of the 67, you know, Summer of Love before it all slightly gets dark and grim with, you know, Charles Manson. And then, you know, and, and obviously it must have been kind of weird because you had Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix and then Janis Joplin or Diane and Altamont. And, you know, it, mm. it suddenly felt like the, the party had really shifted at that stage. How did it feel sort of being a teenager, seeing, seeing that kind of both having kind of amazing albums coming up all the time and then also this kind of like, blimey, that's the end of the 60s. What happened there? Yeah, for me it was like a spell, you know, there was a spell put on you. Um, and that, that music, I think, always has that effect on people, or it does, should have that effect on people, where you feel kind of spellbound by it and you get drawn into into the whole world that you're talking about, in particular that kind of world where, it's, where there's a, a chance to express yourself, there's an opportunity for you to say something and make a noise and and say, yeah, this is me, you know, I can sing, I can dance, I can play guitar, whatever. And that kind of struck me, that that got to me. I wanted to be able to sort of use that. You know, I was quite shy as a child, quite quiet. But, you know, when I strapped on a guitar, I thought, yeah, I can make a real noise with this thing. I can actually go and, and make people stand up and watch me. And it was a kind of... And that kind of developed into what you were talking about, the idea of wanting to to place yourself into a particular place and time, if you like, the idea of being part of something, of being part of a of a, a worldwide movement that kind of had good points and obviously had bad points that you, you were talking about there. So there's a tension, there's an excitement, there's an adrenaline rush that's always accompanied my playing that, that, that um, 
that this 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 been this been there and it's still there today. You know, I still get that same buzz when I when I plug in the guitar. Yes, and were you kind of interested because there was bands like. I mean, there was such a lot of diversity because, you know, you were talking about, you know, the sort of Motown and Soul years and, Mm. you know, Joe Tex. But then you also had this kind of folk movement with the Incredible String Mm. Band. And then you also had Mm. another band which came from Scotland with Willie or William or Bill, I suppose, Richie, who was in a band called One, Two, Three and then uh, Clouds, which were the first kind of prog band ever, which was uh, I only found that out recently when I did an interview. Were Were you sort of... Taking in and all those other influences, or not those, not the Scottish bands. No, I, I was, just, I didn't really, I wasn't really aware of much of the music of bands like Cloud and um, the other ones that you mentioned there. Um, most of, most of the, what, what, what I was listening to, as tear gas, was, was a cross between sort of West Coast American prog and kind of just basically homegrown prog rock um, bands, bands like. Um, I don't know. I suppose Floyd would be, would be an influence, but one of the bigger influences, the biggest, you know, you're talking about moving on from the Beatles and through the Stones and through different generations. Um, and obviously there was guitar players that I looked up to. Obviously, you know, people like Jeff Beck and and, and Richie Blackmore and so on. And you people you wanted to try and emulate. And you, you know, these were your heroes. And then I heard Frank Zappa, and I listened to the Mother of Invention for the first time, and I just heard something and I thought hang on a minute you know you're going to have to learn to play the guitar the way you play it you're not going to have to, you don't want to be learning to play the guitar the way anybody else does and that was the, the influence that Rafa had on me yes. and it forced me into saying yeah play the guitar your own way you know find your own way of making you know making it speak making it talk and and, and, uh, and that's yeah. he was he was the one guitar player that's really always you know stood out for me in, in terms of progressive music if you want to call it he's extremely progressive you know to the yes. point of avant-garde and did bands like i don't know there was a band who i interviewed at randy holden who was in a band called blue cheer they were kind of a psychedelic kind of blues yeah, acid rock no. band did those i know the name but i don't have any i don't have any memory of any of the songs or the music i know the name I, one thing i knew that they were very loud i think were they not yes blue cheer. i think they were very yeah. loud i think they were the I suspect their amps were slightly struggling under the, underneath the, um, yes. Yeah, no, it was just that there was that compilation that everyone loves called Nuggets, where you get kind of, I suppose, very early mm. sort of punk and kind of garage. I suppose it's garage rock they refer to, mm. don't they? Which is, I think most bands had a great single, probably an OK album, but then someone put a compilation together and went, wow, just check out the best, <laughs> the best songs and bingo you're away actually then aren't you so then with when you when you sort of went from tear gas and then you sort of became part of the alex harvey band what was that transition mm-hmm. like did that was that kind of an exciting kind of honeymoon period when when you sort of it kind of it was a kind of um it, it was a kind of marriage of of management companies actually more than anything else our manager and alex's manager i think um who kind of knew each other from the music business uh, between Scotland and London. Um, I think Alex was very, very keen to get a, to get a band together. Um, he, I think he had a, a, an outfit called Giant Moth um, and uh, trying to go in a kind of prog rock d- direction with them. And um, Teardass at that time were struggling to, to, to survive financially, even though we didn't couple of albums out and toured a wee bit and got to Germany and Europe so but um, 
yeah, there was a kind of a kind of knocking together of some you know heads that just said, yeah, let's see if, let's see if we can put these two entities together and see what happens. So it was kind of done like that. Alex came to Glasgow. He brought his guitar. We had rehearsal room had been uh, hired, and we just went into a rehearsal room with him, and he just played this riff. It was a song called Midnight Moses, and he played a pretty simple riff, and he says, can you guys play this riff? And we just, you know, being tear gas, we just beat the living shit out of it, you know, and he went, yeah. He says, well, that'll do. You know, you could tell right away that there was some, he was bouncing about, you know, thinking, yeah, I've got the right band here. So there was a kind of chemistry that just, it just, it was apparent right away. And um, so, yeah, it was, but yeah, it was a kind of marriage of convenience to begin with, but it certainly developed beyond that. Yes, absolutely. Because I think he came from, he had quite a 60s period of being in musicals and, and such like. So there was obviously yeah. quite, quite a flamboyant. Well, he had a big soul band that I saw when I was, when we were in Glasgow, I think maybe in Teargas or before Teargas, I think. It was a big soul band and it was playing like soul music, like James Brown stuff and things like that. And he was, and it was fantastic. It was a, I mean, it was really slick, great sounding band. Um, but I didn't know him at that time. We'd never met at that time. And then we got this chance with tear gas. I think they put us, uh, they booked a marquee in London. And he was on with his band, this band called Giant Moth. And it was just a three or four piece, three piece. And tear gas were invited to play before them or after them. I can't remember now. And so I think that was an idea. I think that was a there was a there was a, a conscious effort there to try and check each other out and give Alex a chance to hear us and us a chance to hear him, sort of thing. Yes. Um I wasn't I wasn't very the giant moth, I have to say. They were pretty dreadful, but <laughs> I could tell from Alex. I could tell from his attitude and his presence and his stage presence and his kind of there was something there. Yes. And of course it um it proved to be to be the case. Yes. And can you remember, and do you have much memory on that track, um, that album? You've got a track called Isabel. Is it spelled, um, pronounced Goody? Or... Isabel Goody, yeah. Goody. Can you remember, because yeah. that's quite an epic, isn't it? I just wondered, you know, what was... It's a song. It's a song it... that Alex had. I think he had, it, he had it for quite a while. I don't think it was, I think it was been written long before, before we met him. It's about the last witch in Scotland to be burned. Yeah, bond at the stake, Isabel Gowdy. Um, so it's a kind of a true story. Um, and yeah, it, it appealed. It's this. It's one of those songs that has a very, a very um, structured prog kind of a, a vibe about it as well, and a proggy sort of feel to it, which appealed to me. The framed album, in, in particular, for me, is probably the the album for me that epitomises what the band really had. Um, as as a, a combination of tear gas and Alex put together, it was done very quickly. The album was recorded over a weekend. You know, we rehearsed the songs in a studio in a rehearsal room, came into the, the studios in Wilsden, Morgan Studios up in London, and recorded that album over a weekend. So basically, it was played live effectively. Yes. And for me, there's a kind of an energy. There's a kind of a real. Yeah, and just even even the, the quality of the songs for me. After that, Sab tended to kind of meander a little bit and indulge themselves a little bit too much for me, to be honest. Um, I've, I've I've often been quoted as saying, you know, I I couldn't quite get my head around the idea of things like, you know, you do Faith Healer at one minute or Chef compliments to the Chef songs like that, and then the next minute you're doing Giddy Up a Ding Dong and Delilah. To me, I just I felt like, what the fuck, you know? I thought this. 
how, how do we make this work? And it really, it was all about record companies want you to have a hit single and appear on top of the pops, basically. You yes. know, and I thought, hang on a minute. You know, I thought to myself, I don't, I'm not here to compete with Sweet or Mud or somebody like that. I'm here to compete with Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and Deep Purple. You know, that's <laughs> that was the competition that I wanted to be to be joined into. But so we got kind of. For me, the music got sidetracked, it got compromised, and, you know, it just, from then on, you know, we kind of got back a little bit when it came to the Rock Drill album with Tommy Ayers got involved, a new keyboard player. Yes. And we kind of came back round to more of a kind of a musical, I mean, more, more musical integrity, let's say. Yes, because it's kind of an extraordinary time, because I just mentioned, you know, Bowie earlier, you know, and in the 70s he did, you know, one album a year, plus he produced a few and toured Mm. and and relocated. I mean, your schedule for the early 70s is is very similar in the sense that you were bringing out an album a year, obviously doing Mm. tours, doing Top of the Pops and doing the whole, Mm. you know, that business. Mm. Did it feel quite... You know, at the time, yeah. did it feel quite relentless? And you thought, God, I'm not quite sure it about did. this. It did. It, it was relentless. You know, that's exactly the word. And it was, yeah, we were young. We were energetic. You know, we, we, we were, we were seeing success. We were, you know, you know, it appeared that we were being successful. You know, on paper, or not so much on paper actually. Um, yeah. So yeah, the band was becoming very popular. It was, you know, the, you know, it was, it was quite meteoric the way the band rose to where it got to. Um, yes. and, and 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 that was down to hard work and down to real just slogging, recording, writing, rehearsing, and and, and you know that was and it and eventually it took its toll. It took its toll on Alex first of all. Yes, I know because it is it is literally, yeah, up to that point you just went through the whole business but also kind of the musical scenes were sort of changing because you know I know you didn't get lumped in with the obviously the glam world too much even though there was a certain quite a theatrical quality but there was there was you know the world of prog had to come along then that west coast rock scene and then the birth mm. of punk rock as well in the sort of mm-hmm. mid-70s mm. I mean how were you as an artist and a guitarist you know, like trying to sort of digest what was going on around you as well as kind of being part of this kind of musical and creative unit? Yeah, that's a good, it's, it, that's a good question. It's quite a, a relevant question in terms of, you know, we, we, kind of, we kind of isolated ourselves a bit, sad because we were so busy and, and absorbed into, in, in the world that we were in, being a being sad, we didn't really look beyond what we were doing. We didn't really look that far afield. We would sit and listen to Frank Zappa over and over again. We'd listen to stuff like that. You know, you, you know it, was, it, was, it was a time when other, other music didn't really, didn't really appear on the horizon. I didn't really take in much to do with any other bands, uh, listening-wise, you know, listen to other music. Um, so it was, a kind of, it was a kind of an odd experience, uh, you know, trying to... It certainly, it was certainly what what came what became apparent was just what you mentioned there was for the first time was when punk came along. That's when I first heard something that made me turn round and go, "Oh, I haven't heard that before," or "Or I haven't heard it done in that way," or "I haven't heard that attitude before." I haven't quite, you know, that sounds. And initially, we approached as musicians, quite accomplished musicians. In, in sad, you know, I'd have to say. Yeah. When we had punk music, we 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 gave it the the thumbs down, 
you know, we were quite snobbish about it all. We thought, what is this? These guys can't really play properly. You know, they're only playing three chords. And I mean, that's a hell of a racket. Them. And it was all kind of like this snobby kind of, as you say, attitude. And I, I, and it didn't last long with me. You know, I eventually, I eventually thought to myself, no, no, there's something going on here. There's something. And Alex saw it, I think, as well. I think he saw that there was something. I remember, in fact, being when I joined Nazareth. This was late 80s, 79, 80. And um, we were in America, touring in America, and went to Texas. Went to a club somewhere in Texas. Can't remember the town. It was just like a, a rock club after the gig, this was, after the show. And it was just a band, and we thought, oh, who's this? There's a band coming on. And people were going, yeah, there's a band, blah, blah. And it was police. Oh, right, yes. And they were just, they were very punky at that point. It was early police, you know. They were, they were, and I just stood at the back of the hall, and I just thought to myself, fuck me, man, these guys are good. You know, and I could see the other guys in Nazareth going, what is this crap? And I'm going, no, hang on a minute, guys. You know, there's something going on here. And, you know, that was a kind of, a moment when I when I saw that there was a change, you know, there was a change coming in terms of, you know, a lot of the punk bands saying, oh, forget all these prog rock, you know, music that, you know, people trying to disappear up their own arse was the famous quote, you know. Yes. Yeah, and it was and it was like, no, just get three chords together and, and thrash out a song and it kind of, suddenly it was like, yeah. That's the way to do it now. There was a lot of anger. When you got to 77, mm. the, the great Silver Jubilee year, you, did you really bring out two albums in almost... No, yeah. it, it was four, four Play and then Rock Drill, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. There was, yeah, I don't know if it was Four Play, then Rock Drill or something else. Can't quite remember. Yeah, Four Play was when Alex was unwell. Right. Um, and uh, we just had a commitment, obviously, to fulfil with the record company. So they said, yeah, you better go and make another album. And it was like, you know, you weren't given any leeway, you weren't given any any real uh, yeah, you know, concession at all to you you had to just stick to that contract of churning out an album every year or two albums as it turned out that year. Yes. Um and yeah, it was it was us being kind of studio musicians in a sense, being kind of musos, trying to be clever, trying to be a little bit slick. Um all about kind of anodyne at the end of the day it didn't really amount to much for me it didn't amount to an awful lot musically really no and then because because mm. the next album which is the seventh album you've done as, as the band did did you feel that there was because i spoke to a lot of musicians and often they they have that moment where they kind of think actually i think this is probably going to be the end very kind of soon the, you mm. know especially that recording did you have that feeling with rock drill even though you've got a new yeah. you've got tommy on the you know the keyboards at that stage yeah yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. It felt very much like that. It felt like we were, we were struggling. Everybody was struggling. You know, relationships were struggling. Marriages were getting a bit fraught. You know, the whole thing was getting, you know, and you could tell Alex wasn't well. He was, you know, drinking a lot. Blah blah blah. He was, he was trying to recreate something. I think that was beginning to disintegrate. He was trying to hold on to it, and. Um, and even though Tommy brought brought a lot to the table, and you know, a wonderful, wonderful musician, you know, but um, there was a kind of there was less, let's say, there wasn't the same respect for Alex that there had been from the beginning, you know, um, through most of the other albums and right up towards that point. 
I think the, the, I think Alex had lost some of his energy and some of his charisma and some of his creativity. So that kind of fed through into the band. We began to see and think to ourselves, no, um, we're not, he's, he's, you know, we're not going to get this done. It's not going to, you know, and it just it kind of it petered out. Rock drill that actually petered out on the second side of the album. You could almost hear it uh, with songs like um, I can't even remember the song, something about oh, Midnight Nightmare City and stuff like that. I mean, we threw that together in like five minutes in the studio just to sort of make get another track on the album. <laughs> so yes. it, it was there wasn't a lot of, and yet the funny thing is that a lot of that album is actually my favourite sad music. When I listen to Dolphins, for example, the song that comes after the, the Rock Drill Suite, Dolphins, is, Dolphins, in fact, is my favourite sad song of all time. So there was... It's kind of ironic that there was all that potential uh, of working with Tommy and taking things a stage further, but um, it never got to that point. Yes. Did you have a, a moment after that where, you know, everyone... Called it a day. Was there was there a sort of Yeah. Well we did Alex called it a day. We were rehearsing down at Shepparton on the big soundstage studios with um the full blown production prior to a complete full European tour that had been lined up. And um so that would have been perhaps would have been the real stepping stone in terms of um perhaps taking the band to another level. Who knows? But a couple of days into rehearsal, Alex turned up, came on stage and then sat up beside and says, I can't do this anymore, guys. And we just thought, okay, you can't do it, Alex. He just said, ordered a taxi and disappeared and went home. And that was that. We just sat around saying, okay, that's the end of it. That's the end of that. Yeah. And I immediately, I immediately turned around. I went home, looked at my wife, lived up in North London. I looked at her and looked at the kids and I says, how am I going to earn 200 quid a week? Because that's what we were getting paid, 200 quid a week. And I thought, how am I going to earn 200 quid a week now? So I immediately just jumped in my car, put a radio in it and drove a minicab for about a year and a half around around London just to try and make a living. And that was, that was you know, late, late 70s. My God, that's so hand-to-mouth, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that was that kind of hints to what I was talking about earlier in terms of the success levels of success that you imagine you're you know we got you know it always it always amused me at the end when Saab broke up and the whole management company disintegrated and and the thing the company went into liquidation and all that sort of thing the whole I mean it just completely disintegrated anyway the um the idea that this was a band that had headlined the Reading Festival um you know, and, and and had like I'm, I'm sitting looking here right now at umpteen gold and silver albums that's sitting on the wall, and um, at the end of the day, when the company went into liquidation, we were all handed a, a, a sheet of paper. The four other members of the band got handed a sheet of paper to say that we each of us owed the record company or the management company seventy five grand each. That's that's where it ended up, and we all looked at each other and we just thought, "Hang on a minute, are you sure about this?" You know, so. It's just another one of those rock and roll stories, you know. Everybody's got their own version of it, and you know, another Sex yes. Pistols brought, brought it up as well. But it was a kind of, it was a real, you know, it was like your 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 whole energy, your whole your whole raison d'etre just sank, you know, when you were 
when you realise that after all of that, uh, here you are driving the mini cab for a couple of hundred quid a week trying to pay the bills. Yes, well, I, I did. I suppose one of the most humbling interviews I've ever done was Les from the Bay City Rollers, who, you know, mm. I must admit, you know, I mean, I was quite young at the time. They weren't my band, you know, but, um, mm. you know, his story is sort of kind of kind of beyond heartbreaking the way that, you know, when he decided mm. to quit the band and just say, I can't do this, you know, it was like, thought where's my money and it's like you haven't got any money <laughs> it's like my god what's yeah. to, you know you've been a member of the base it's a classic tale it is it was horrendous a lot of people yes a lot of people at that time and i think that i think there was lessons learned some serious lessons learned uh subsequently and, and you know there was things were tightened up in terms of record contracts and, and commitments and so on so yeah but you put your own band together before you did nazareth didn't you kind of with that was that was a, a record management company trying to hang on to something that was, you know, on the on the death of Saab, you know, what can they possibly keep going that will allow the record company, you know, to fulfil a contract or to pay money back or to whatever the deal was. It was like just let's keep the ball rolling. So who's the next in line that we can stick on the front of a poster and it was yeah Zal that'll do Zal yeah you know because I had a you know I had a fairly prominent persona I suppose next to Alex it was the the the, the, the persona that kind of stood out I suppose so that was kind of so we harnessed a few ideas for that but that was that was ill-fated as well and terribly terribly badly put together yes God, was the was the call from Nazareth just like a blessing for you? Just to think, I oh, thank God, I'm I'm just kind of I can go into a band. I don't need to sort anything out at this stage. Well, it was, yeah, I don't know about a blessing. It was um, I kind of I kind of um, I shied away from it to, to begin with because I was really sceptical and reluctant. And I'll tell you why was the Nazareth. It was Nazareth's management company who managed Saab. It's called Mountain Management, and right. it was Nazareth who, who who had effectively been running that company, or it was there there on the, the success of their their their, uh, their, their record sales that, that kept that company going. Um, and when Saab folded up, and the record com- and the management company were on the verge of breaking down, and I thought, well, hang on a minute, you know. Uh, we had been asked to pay back seventy-five grand to a management company uh, that, I, that I don't—I don't think that they, they managed the situation terribly well, you know. And that, that's pretty much how it, how it ended up. You know, there was no, there was no further legal. You know, the company went into liquidation, and there was no further legal action could be taken. So nobody paid anything to anybody. You know, it was just like, yeah, fuck it, that's the end of it. Forget it. So joining Nazareth. Was a kind of I thought I'd, I had a slightly sour taste from the management company side of things, and I thought, well, Manny, you know that's, but Manny kind of convinced me to come out to the states and see where they were, what they were doing, and obviously they were huge. They were playing stadiums, and it was a bit of an eye opener. And I thought, wow, okay, fair enough. Um, and you know, it wasn't particularly my style of music, to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, I, I, I thought there was limitations there musically, to be honest. Again, yes. um, but at the same time, I could sense that it was an outlet. I think they were looking for someone 
to come up with you know some fresh ideas, some songwriting ideas. And I, I had loads of ideas at that time, so I thought to myself, right, okay, let's see, let's see how it can work. And um, and that was when I decided to just join them and see where it would go. Yes, because this is, I mean, your that first album that you did on No Mean City is their bizarrely their tenth studio album, I think. So um, they'd been going for a long time. I mean, actually, you know, Nazareth was one of those bands that. I would love, you know, Deep Purple. I thought Black Sabbath fantastic, and then went into the world of Motorhead. But Nazareth, mm. you know, didn't, yeah, you know, were never one of those ones. I don't know. I think it was possibly the record covers that used to put me off a bit. I don't know. You know, when you're quite fickle, <laughs> yeah, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> you kind of think. Yeah. Oh, no. Well, I think I think you've uh, I think you and I are of a similar opinion in terms of Nazareth. You know, and I don't want to decry anyone. No, or, of course. Or put anyone down, or, or but I think, as I said earlier, I think I, I felt there were some limitations. Uh, in, in terms of, of the musicianship, having come from Saab, who had the most phenomenal rhythm section and um, you know and drummer and so on, and I, I thought, yeah, well, you know, it's not quite that, it's not quite Saab, but let's see, let's see if I can have an influence, let's see if I can maybe drag them in a, you know another direction or something. But it was, it, it for me, uh, my time in Nazareth just seemed to be. I don't know, we did an album, the, the, the Malice in Wonderland album, they got produced by Jeff Baxter, and we went out to the Bahamas and for weeks and weeks, sitting in the sun and all that stuff, and I was like, yeah, yeah, all right, but, and it just, for me, it didn't even sound like a rock album, you know, it sounded like something completely different. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't quite what I thought it was going to be, or, or you know, my time with Nazareth didn't turn out to be what I thought it was going to be, to be honest, musically. Um, but hey, you know. That's... Well, it's interesting. I was watching one of those classic album series the other day, and it was Steely, Steely Dan, and they were talking about mm. their kind of couple of albums. Mm. And I think is was Jeff kind of connected with mm. Steely Dan at some? Yeah, he played. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he played Steely Dan. Yeah. My God, they were such yeah. a complicated band. Don Baxter. Yes. Well, Steely Dan. Yeah, I mean they were phenomenal. I mean, the, you know, that's real class class act. You know, and Fab. Sab, the, the four play album has hints, little hints of Steely Dan at times, um, because they were, you know, huge. The keyboard player was influenced quite heavily by that style of music, you know, a little bit semi jazz, little touch of jazz rock, touch of fusion, you know, and you can hear elements of it on the four play album, you know, trying to trying to get ourselves into that muso sort of ballpark. Mm. Um, Did you find your songwriting? started to sort of come back you know did that did that sort of give you a bit of kind of i don't know artistic freedom or confidence come back come back when what? well that album because quite a lot of the tracks on the album malice are oh. written by you aren't they you are the, the you're the, talking about on the fourth play or nazareth um nazareth the malice oh, nazareth, yeah yeah no the songwriting for me i don't find songwriting terribly difficult to be honest I, you know i can conjure up a song or a riff, or something that's reasonably interesting, quite quickly, and um, so yeah, it was um, it was just a it was just a yeah it was it was it was nice to be able to have your ideas. Um, you, although before that, I was I was more interested in going more down the sort of route of, of what I was talking about earlier on, more down the Zappa route. Yeah. And um, musically, I was beginning to think more in the jazz. Field, more infusion, more classical, if you like, more soundtrack. Um, that that that's that that's kind of thing, and so I got I got kind of sidetracked from that with Nazareth, 
and brought back into just a you know the you know verse chorus verse chorus solo out kind of format of of writing songs you know in that in that sort of style. Um, and what was it like being the, the Bahamas recording <laughs> material? Because obviously this this is quite different than some grey streets in North London or Glasgow. I mean, you know, being, yeah. I mean, because it was when I was once in America doing one of those road trips in New Mexico, and and mm. and I suddenly put on something by I don't know probably the Eagles, and I thought, oh my God, yeah, I really get the Eagles at this stage because it, you know, it was blue sky, deserts, cactuses everywhere. You just it falls into place. It yeah. all falls into place. I just yeah, wondered if you no. were feeling a little bit like the environment was influencing your kind yeah, of yeah, creative. yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't. I mean, the songs were all written more than pretty much before we got to the Bahamas, um, so they were all sort of written and rehearsed. I think before we really got there, even though we spent quite a bit of time there. I think that was more just a question of you know using up uh, record company money or something. You know, there was a lot of squandering going on. A lot of drugs, a lot of cocaine, and stuff like that. Which, um, you know, for me it was like, yeah, can we get on with music now? You know, it was. So it was, it was a kind of, a kind of an odd, an odd environment. I felt slightly sort of out of, out of my depth, or a fish out of water to some extent. I always did feel slightly like that with Nazareth, um, which is part of the reason why I left it uh, after a couple of years. I was. You know, there was a, there was a, we'd, we'd come to the point where we were about to do another album, and um, we went up to to Dunfermline, up to Fife, where the boys lived, and and I could sense, and I says, right, we're going to be doing another album. They said, yeah, once you've written all the songs, I'll we'll do another album. That's the kind of impression that I got, and I thought, all right, okay, you want me to sit in the room writing songs, and then we'll we'll bring them over, and you can, and I thought, yeah, that's all very well, but I've got other musical ideas that I want to go on with. And they certainly weren't. They certainly weren't going to be. To be, they weren't suitable for Nazareth. And that's when I decided, hmm, let, let's 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 go elsewhere. And that's when I got got I got, I got involved with Barry Barry Barrymore, Barry Barry Barlow from Jethro Tull, right? Who who'd asked me to get involved with him, and he was keen to get something off the ground musically, and um, and uh, we ended up putting a little sort of short-lived thing, Candidate Cassette, was put together. And it never really got anywhere. Musically, it was great. Musically, it was really interesting. And there's nothing really documented that I don't think there's any, well, there's one or two little things lying around. But um, it was incredibly interesting musically. And it was the first time I'd tried to sing as being a singer in a band. You know, I was going to be like, okay, you'll be the singer, you'll be the front man, even though I couldn't sing. Um, it was all a bit kind of, um, but the music was really interesting, and uh, but it just didn't have any legs. It just, I don't know. It, it seemed like it, we were out of place at the time. You know what was going on at that point in time was seemed to be very different. Well, it's kind of an interesting, well, vaguely interesting, but again, in that turn of a decade, because you know had mentioned punk, and then there'd been this kind of the mm. post-punk world, and then sort of from that. There was kind of, you know, obviously prog rock had really become an embarrassment, and then, you know, that <laughs> turn of <clears throat> that turn of the decade, you know, Thatcher gets into power. There's a kind of a rise mm. of that new romantic world and that Trevor Horn production sound, and then on the mm. other side, you had bands like U2 and Simple Minds and The Smiths. So there was kind of an indie world that had sort of developed as well at that mm. stage. So, yeah, it must be difficult for artists to sort of work out where you go next when that kind of 
you realise the the party's over, you know, and you either got to leave or do the washing up, and you're thinking, Christ, I don't know, what do I do? So <laughs> when the with after the one with Barry Barlow, did you say Barry Barlow with that that you worked with? Barry, yeah, yeah. Barry so then, did you? Yeah, did you then sort of start working with Elkie Brooks at that that kind of early? That was just purely sense, purely as a session musician. That was just to pay the bills, you know. That was just I got a phone call from um, a bass player, John Giblin, who's a Scottish bass player, who must have got my name from somewhere. They were like, Jeff Whitehorn had played guitar with Elke, and he was leaving, and they were just looking for another replacement guitarist. And I just got a call, contact from John Giblin, to say, do you want to come down and have an audition? And I says, uh, I thought, Elke Brooks? I thought, yeah, I mean, I like Elke Brooks, you know, from the days of Dada and... You know, when working with uh, Robert Palmer, and I thought, yeah, she can sing. You know, I thought, hell, she's yes, she's cool. good. But, but, but and then I thought, yeah, you know, Lilac Wine, and uh, I thought, hang on a minute, is this the same? You know, what sort of gig is this? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, she'd gone extremely sort of cabaret. Well, I wouldn't say cabaret, but you know, you know what I mean. It was a, certainly was a, a bit of a departure from what I'd been involved in beforehand. Yeah, but musically, it was very accomplished musicians. You know, and I thought. I thought, yeah, and it kind of it was an interesting learning curve for me musically. You know, I learned a lot of stuff, and I learned to be sort of a lot more disciplined because I don't have a lot of discipline when I play the guitar. I tend to play pretty much off the top of my head. Um, it's a pretty free-form approach that I have when I play guitar, especially when I'm playing solos. So to have to sort of knuckle down and you know get your get all the the, the notes in the right order in the right place was a bit of a it's a bit of an exercise for me. But yeah, no, 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 no harm done really over the period. Yes, because it was another, because the guitarist she had before that was Tim Rennick, who I did an interview with a few weeks ago. Cause he'd done stuff with David Bowie, but and then Pink, mm. lots with Pink Floyd. But he'd also been lined up to do this massive world tour with Elton John, who then said, "Actually, I'm not going to do it anymore. This isn't working." Mm -hmm. And then suddenly he was kind of like, "Oh my God, what have I? I've got two years. I, I had two years booked there, and nothing's happening." So obviously, yeah. being being a guitarist like that must feel at times like, "Oh my God, I can't believe." You know, do you, how do you cope with with those kind of moments where you, you you know one minute you're you're there working with bands in a studio with a producer and everything's happening and then suddenly yeah. the diary and the calendar looks a bit empty i just wondered how you navigate that that period well i just i kept i've always gone back to driving a mini you know like i said earlier even even through the 80s uh when i left nazareth again and you know i did some more work driving courier work driving taxis driving some courier delivery van that sort of thing in between things. The, 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 the nice thing about Elkie was that it was really well paid. It was session musician rates uh, all the way down the line. So it was it was a good income. And um, and uh, we lived down in Henley at that point, down in Henley on Thames. Um, I'd moved down there because Barry lived down there, and that's the idea was to move. I moved down to sort of be closer to, to do the Tanduri cassette thing. But then we stayed in Henley for a while. So, yeah, it was... Um, it was well paid, and then I joined Bonnie Tyler for a year or two, 
and that was also very well paid. So it was just a question of just turning up and just you know doing what you do. Yes. Um, when when you did with Elke, you did an L, uh, track, the opening track, and it was a like title track, minutes. But the, you yeah. were you were working with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Did that was that kind of an interesting experience? Did you? Well, have... I wasn't there. No, no, I wasn't really there at the time. I don't I don't know when the recording was done with the orchestra, but I certainly wasn't around. Right. At that point. Uh, yes. We recorded the, you know, the, our parts, I think, separately, and then the, the the orchestra was added on, I think, at some point, obviously. Yes, I know. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. But you must have felt quite chuffed, see, you know, when you heard the yeah the, the final yeah. mix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was it was a nice song. It was I can remember the day we wrote it down at Elkie's house, and Duncan Mackay, the keyboard player, and I were just playing about trying to get some ideas, and he played this sequence, and I started singing this melody. And, I, and right away, Elkie just put her head around the door and went, what is that? And I went, yeah, with a song called Minutes. She went, yeah, okay, let's do that. And it was uh, it was quite a sweet moment, you know, it just all fell into place. It was, it was a really nice song. Yes, absolutely. And then, yeah, because you said you, you toured with Bonnie Tyler, which must have been one of those epic, because she'd had the big singles in the Jim Steinman production numbers, hadn't she, in the sort of 80s as yeah, well? Yeah, well... <laughs> It's, uh, well, I'll tell you a secret about it, Bonnie. It was um, the Jim Stein production. Yeah, when I got the, when I was given the chance to, to do the gig, and I said, "Yeah, you're, you're going to be playing. You're going. To, you've got the gig, something." I sat in the house and I sort of learned all these guitar parts, all these some pretty pretty intricate guitar parts on a, on a few of a few of the songs. And I said, "Yeah, it's pretty decent stuff. You know, I can learn that. I can play that. Blah blah blah." But then I realised that when you when we went out with Bonnie, you just mind. She just, her husband just played a tape out front. She sang, and we just bounced about on tape, looking like we were playing. Oh, and that, and that was all we did for the for the whole year, two years that I was with her. <laughs> went to France, we went to Germany, we did TV shows, went to Iceland, and you would just plug your, yeah, you, know, you didn't have to plug your guitar, and we just stood there in mind and bounced about for about two years. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I hate, to, I, hate to, I hate to give the uh, give the secret away. The know, game or. That was it. After having learned all these guitar parts, looking forward to, you know, bashing out a few tunes, it was um, it was a serious anticlimax. I have to. Say. I would imagine it. Did did it feel a bit like at the end? Why am I doing? Could you know? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a bit. Yeah, it was a bit daft. Yes. You know, you obviously you were getting paid to just mime, and I thought, yes, not really. You know, like eventually you thought it's not why I came into the business. You know, it's not really what I want to be doing. So. No. And it was funny at that time I was. That was during the time I was with Elkie, but then I got a call from I got a call from another bass player, <laughs> you know, bass players that keep contacting me to join there to 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 step in and do the mid year tour that he was organising. Where um, Mick uh, Mick from uh, what's his name, Bowie's guitar player, Mick. Oh, Ronson. Mick Ronson, yes. Yeah, Mick was he was in rehearsals, but it wasn't. I don't think Mick was in a good place, perhaps at the time. I don't. I don't know. But anyway, from what I gather, it wasn't really working out too well, and the tour was getting very close. And Kevin, who was the bass player with Midge, had worked with Elke, and he gave me a call saying, "Look, can you come down? We need a guitar player right away, sort of thing." And I just sort of stepped in and and uh, did the world tour with Midge for the gift. It was the gift album he was touring. Yes, which was his one of his massive. I mean, God, Mitchell and the. Yes, you almost probably got yeah. to play it live, eh, didn't you? But not quite. Did you play it live, eh? Didn't manage that. 
No, I didn't get to that one. No. No, that was around eighty-five, wasn't it? So, but at least, but at least we played live. Yes, I would imagine. You know that that the novelty of just live. miming on stage must have felt quite tricky at times. Yeah, yeah. But um, then, yeah. then during the nineties, was this a kind of a period where you you play you 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 were part of the Party Boys, which also featured Fish and various other. Yeah. What was that? Again, it was a kind of um, it was the dregs of Fab. Um, Ted, the drummer, um, wanted to put. A, he had this idea of, of pretty much what Jules Holland had done in terms of putting together a band where you had sort of guests singing, guests appearing, you know, coming in and out with a with a with sort of a, with a sort of pickup band that sort of sat behind everybody. And I thought, yeah, well, okay. And, and I was I wasn't really into playing much at that point, but. Ted convinced me to come down and have a little plonk about with him and play in the little rehearsal room. And of course, the two of us, you know, we have a great, a great chemistry between us musically. So it was, it was quite, and then we just said, yeah, okay, let's see what we can do. And, and, and the more, then Chris got involved in that. And of course, when Chris got involved, it was like, well, there's three members of Sab have suddenly appeared on the, on the horizon. And everybody started to look up and take notice and say, oh, is this a reformed Sab? Is this, What's happening? Is it going to? And that kind of developed into yes, a reformed version of Sab with Stevie Doherty singing. Uh, that was early nineties, I guess. Yes. Did that feel after the kind of the exhaustion and the kind of the way it finished? Did that feel quite re- kind of enjoyable to sort of revisit it and sort of feel kind of a bit lighter? Yeah. Um, it was. Um, yeah, it was it was it was okay. It was it was good. You know, we've got the four of us got back together. Hugh obviously got back. He, his health hadn't been very good. He'd suffered a lot of mental health issues, Hugh. Um, but he was good at that point, and he was good enough to come back into the the fold and, and start playing with us again. Um, I don't think Stevie was ever the, the the correct singer. He had a great voice. You know, he was a real Bon Jovi kind of you know foreigner type Johnny sort of vocals. You know tremendous voice but he didn't have the theatrics he didn't have the nuance that was required for sab songs so it was all done in a kind of a more of a metal rock thrash sort of version of everything and it was um which is okay but but um yeah a bit again just not quite the right chemistry so i kind of pulled the plug on that as well yes God, it's difficult, isn't it? That's really <laughs> well. It is. <laughs> it's like you, you have such expectations, but then you, you you did you sort of go into performing with various other kind of combos after that? Was that was it kind of a case of sort of because you did a bit of acting, didn't you, as well in in a westin? No, <laughs> I wouldn't call it acting. <laughs> it was just doing somebody a favour. This young kid, young director in Glasgow, who'd got himself a scholarship and had. Uh, had got some money to make a movie, a short movie, a, a western that was shot in the, the outskirts of Glasgow, which was quite amusing. Um, but David Heyman, the, the actor, uh, worked quite well known actor. He 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 got himself involved in it. He wanted to support this young director, that, uh, Robert Kelly, and um, and I and I initially said, yeah, I'll do the music for it. I'll do the theme tune if you want to get. And they said, oh, that's great. That'll great. Put your name down. David Heyman's name went down. That was quite cool. So he got his funding, he got in, in, and off we went, and we <laughs> with a horse into this housing scheme in Glasgow, and called it a western. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was hilarious. 
But um, as it as it turned out, it wasn't just the music. You know, he says, "Well, I've got a part that you might want to play," and I'm thinking, "Who's this?" You know, the guy that owns a saloon, he owns a hotel, and, and so he, so he gave me the script, and I said, "Yeah, okay, I'll just turn up, I'll get dressed up like a cowboy, and and, and kid on a can act." And that was basically all it was, you know. And, and the amusing thing of with that film was that we managed to get hold of a lady who managed to get us to Cannes, the Cannes Film Festival, of all things. <laughs> so the three of us got into a <clears throat> into my Citroen Picasso, drove from Glasgow to Cannes, non-stop, I might add, uh, turned up in Cannes. She put us up in a, a little flat somewhere. We got to the festival. <laughs> Rubbed shoulders with a few famous faces and people like that, and it was like just hilarious, you know. It was like here we are, here we are wandering about in cans, like fucking. It was idiotic, completely idiotic. But anyway, that was yeah. So then we drove non-stop back to Glasgow, and that was that. That was the end of that. Yes, God, that was a, that was a. I mean, everyone does a, a bit of a film moment. So Mick that, Jagger. Yeah. That, that, that was my acting career, yeah. That was it, really. And when you were doing yeah. those other, you know, you, you had other outfits like Z- Z- Zuicide, is it, how do you pronounce that? No, they were, they were ill-conceived and, and abortive attempts at trying to more or less do someone, do people a favour, you know. People wanted to, to, to get me involved because of my background and so on and you know, trying to convince me to get involved in something that you could put your name to and we could make something out of it. But no, very, very poorly, poorly judged. And all of those and sort of things just never really, they never came to anything at all, you know. Yes. God, that's, um, was it the case then when you, because you said you'd gone to Cyprus, this was, I think this was around, mm. was it about five, six years ago you did your kind of have a break from everything, you know, when yeah, you... after uh, yeah, well, after we reformed Saab the second time with Max, that that was a slightly more positive approach. I thought when Max had auditioned, I wasn't there at the time, but Max auditioned for it, and the guy said, "Hey, this guy's quite interesting." So I went up to Glasgow, and we had a little play around, and I thought, "Yeah, he wasn't the greatest singer in the world, but he had a lot of personality and a lot of persona, and he got a lot of attitude, and he got." He got me kind of excited about the idea of performing, and I mean performing in terms of the theatrics, in terms of dressing up, putting the makeup on again for the first time since the 70s. And um, he kind of dra- dragged me back into that that whole world again, and 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 it was and it was a good version. It was a good version of Sab. It wasn't the best version, but it was a, a certainly a good version of Sab, and it uh, and it went on for a bit. Uh, until 2007, I guess, something like that. But what happened there was I was kind of, I thought to myself, yeah, okay, it's all very well being in Sab and going over and through the same songs over and over and over again. I just thought I wanted to move on again. I wanted to write new stuff. I wanted to try and record new material and get the guys. But the interest level was just zero. It was just like, nah, I just want to turn up prance about to Delilah and walk away again, you know, and I thought, no, fuck that, I'm not going to do that for the rest of my life. Yes. And it was just, no, I don't want to be playing the same riffs over and over again, you know, and it, good songs, great songs, yeah, but I wanted to move on and do something fresh and something different, so that's when I decided just to stop playing around about 2007, and that's right. when I met Rachel. 
I met Rachel, my partner, down here, and that's when I moved to Yorkshire because she lives in Yorkshire. Yes. Marriage broke up. Marriage broke up. I got divorced. And Rachel and I Oh. You... I stopped playing. I didn't play for about 10 years. I didn't play guitar for about 10 years. Yes. Did you... Hello? Yeah, sorry. That was just... There was just a ping. No. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, fine. Yeah, I've got you. I've got you there. It just sounded... No, but did you say you, you got together with Rachel and then went to Cyprus? Or did... No, you went to Yorkshire. That was it, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. She was living in Yorkshire. We met, we met at a Saab gig. She came to see the band. She was a big fan of the band. And we just got to know each other, and uh, eventually we kind of we kind of fell in love, and that was as uh, simple as that. My marriage broke down, and then I came to live in Barnsley, and uh, we spent a couple of years here in, in Yorkshire before we her, her job took us out to Cyprus for about three and a half, four years. So at that point, I hadn't really played guitar for well since two thousand and seven. I hadn't played the guitar at all. Yeah, I'd stopped playing altogether. Yes. Did you? I didn't that... intend to play it. I didn't really intend to do anything musically yes. after that. Did you feel tempted to sort of get rid of your musical instruments or were you just... Um... I did actually. I didn't really have that many. I've never really had that many guitars. I'm not really a bit of a... I'm not a, I'm not a guitar buff, you know. I don't have guitars hanging all over the walls. I've never been... Learning. To me, it's a plank of wood that you can use to make a, make a noise. I'm not really a, an aficionado of anything. I like. I know... If it stays in tune, I'm happy. You know, that's the kind of guitar I like. But um, I do have two guitars now that are really quite nice. But um, yeah, I didn't. I took an acoustic guitar with me, a little plug-in electric acoustic guitar to Cyprus, which lay in the cupboard, it lay in the cupboard, and lay in the cupboard for about I don't know two years, whatever. And then I had this breakdown, like I say, and um, that's when I just had to say to myself, I need to turn something around here. I need to try and and I just, as I said, approached it. Approached picking up the guitar as a form of therapy. Yes. And um, and it kind of sort of snowballed. The more I played, I thought, yeah, that's a, that sounds nice. That sounds nice. That sounds interesting. So in Cyprus, I actually went out and bought myself a cheap electric guitar and a little Blackstar plug-in amplifier, tune-up amp, and sat in the house up in in, in Cyprus, up in the hills. And uh, started to make a bit of a noise on the electric guitar again, and that began to, you know, develop into, hmm, you know, there's an idea, there's a song, there's a riff, blah blah blah. Yes. Did you find that you know, because it's kind of a horrendous place to be in, you know, when everything just comes crashing down emotionally and you know mentally. Mm. Did that was that did that kind of scare you at that stage? You know, of like what was happening yeah. and how you were going to try and find your get, yeah. get out of that period yeah it was, it was it was very scary yeah i mean it was a depression and anxiety and i just had a complete nervous breakdown and then i was just curled up you know asking ways to just put me away put me in a home somewhere i don't want to i don't want to know i can't deal with this and then she was just like you know i was in and out of hospital i was in and out of treatment and psycho psychotherapy for two years uh, in Cyprus, which was wonderful, which is a wonderful young psychotherapist called called Christos, who was a bit of a saviour, to be honest. Between that and the sort of medication and general, you know, support that I got from everyone, yes. I eventually I eventually realised that um, 
that music might be might be something that would you know get me get me through this. And as it happens, it has done. Yeah, I mean it's um, quite an interesting kind of it's kind of interesting because I suppose speaking to a lot of people who've been you know musicians and bands, there is that kind of moment where there's a kind of like all those highs or all those experiences and so, but you know even the lows are kind of you're still kind of with it and then there's a period where mm. everything is just kind of there's a nothingness as well and it's kind of deep you know like probably a couple of years five years of trying to navigate right. out of that again so it's kind of it's unfortunately a sort of a bit of a common story isn't it um yeah, yeah. i mean I, you know i mean yeah i'm telling you the story but it's you know i, I know that it's, it's happened to a great many people many people in the creative industries you know where you have that that adrenaline thing and that 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 just as what you're saying the highs and the lows um i've managed to even all that out you know i've managed to kind of get myself into a place where i can you know i don't i don't i don't expect anything now from the music i don't expect it to be liked or to be a number one bestseller. I don't expect to be on top of the pops. I don't expect anything from the music I make now. I just, you know, if one other people, if one other person turns around and says, yeah, I like it, then that's my job done. You know, that's how I feel about it. If someone else likes it. Yes. You know, if nobody likes it, then, you know, you know, I can still, I can still sit here and play. Yes, absolutely. And still put it out. I mean, have you, I mean, because the one thing I've noticed in the last few years amazing amount of people have been you know writing books or documenting or archiving mm. their stuff have you you know because you've obviously gone through decades there's there's kind of an interesting mm. kind of story and narrative there have you sort of looked at some of the kind of things that you've done and thought I, I need to somehow kind of archive or collect it or write not, about it not from the music side of things not from my experience in the music business but i do have a novel that i've been working on for quite some time, I'm on the final draft of the novel right now, as we speak. Excellent. Um, and that is more set in the future. It's more about evolutionary biology, about about the evolution of our species and how we develop beyond who we are and what we are, and how other species have developed and become prominent and powerful. And uh, the sort of it's, it's, a, it's an interesting. But it's called Rule R O O L is the title of it and Orphans of the Ash is actually the subtitle which is where the, where the title of the band where the band's name comes from okay yes all makes sense so at the beginning you think you, things are beginning to fall into place probably now for me in terms of uh, my product, productive you know creative side uh, the book is, is as important to me now as the music and always has been from day one but um, I have to sort of, you know I have to go from one to the other I can't and I keep both things going at the same time, so to speak. So I sort of delve into one and then I stop and go back to the other and and do some writing. So, but I'm on the final draft of the book, which is um, it's, it's 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 interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Because a few years ago I did an interview. I know his surname Jobson from the Skids, and he Ed, Eddie Jobson. Yes, he'd written a book as well recently as well, which um, I think yeah. had a slightly you know, um, I don't know, futuristic quality, because I think it was a, a cover, I remember him explaining, which was a little bit about David Bowie at the time. So, um, uh -huh. oh, Richard, that's it, isn't it? Richard Jobson. So Richard Jobson, I beg your pardon. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah so, that's right. Um, yes, he, he'd written a book. So is it, 
now, you know, in the last few years, have you sort of, with everything that's happened, you know how to keep things balanced to kind of what to look out for with kind of difficult situations and what to sort of focus yeah. your energy into so that you can you yeah. can sort of keep a sort of a good sort of balance in life? Yeah, very much, very much so, David. That is pretty much where I'm at. I live day to day. I mean, I still have anxiety attacks. I still have to deal with that. Um, I have dizzy spells. I faint. I pass out. You know all that shit. It's, it's, you know, you just learn to sort of cope. Um, but yeah, the balance. You know, I've, I've, I've had, I've had lots of good, good advice and good treatment. Um, and the medication that I take now is, is, it works much better for me. And um, so yeah, I can, I can, I can function normally. I can, I can go into a creative. Uh, environment. I can pick up the guitar. I can sit down and put the laptop on and write. I can absorb myself in these creative uh, elements that you know that, I've, that I feel I have a sort of a penchant for. You know, I've, I've got a, I've got a, you know, I've got a skill for what I do, and um, I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose that skill. I don't want to lose that enthusiasm for it. I would hate to. I would hate to wake up one day and say. Yeah, you know, I don't fancy picking the guitar up. You know, I, don't, I mean, I don't play the guitar every day, but no. I know fine well it's, it's sitting right behind me right now, and I know fine well if I pick it up and plug it in, I'll come up with something. I'll come up with an idea. You know, I know I know fine well that that's that's I've got that within me. So so that's that's part of the balance. It's part of of, of as you say, you know, appreciating what it is you've got to to do and. What you've got to say, let's say, as an artist, well, you know, all that sort of stuff. Yes, <laughs> I like. I'm, I'm guessing that relationship with, you know, Billy is kind of really important in the sense that it's a new thing mm. rather than rehashing an old band or, yeah, just exactly, exactly. Know. I mean, we're very, very, we're very similar. You know, we're, we're kindred spirits. We, we approach music in very much the same way. We play guitar very much the same way. You know, very spontaneous players. So there's a lot of sparks and there's a lot of energy. And um, as you mentioned earlier, you can hear it in the song and then Last Train. There's a, there's a couple of other tracks that are ready to to be put out. We're not well. We're going to hold back now. We're going to hold back until we've got a whole album done, rather than this idea of releasing a song every month or something. You know, I mean, the, the response in terms of putting that song out on Bandcamp wasn't quite as meteoric as we thought it was going to be you know we didn't get you know you get a bit we had an excellent response people say yeah great love the track but you know you know band camp sends you you know it's like yeah you've got 59 quid in your account you know that's that's basically what you've made from putting that little song and video up until now so yes. i'm sitting going oh okay 59 quid you know only cost us 150 to get it mastered at fucking abbey road you know so that's again. It's, it's almost like you're back to square one of the music business again. You know, it's like it's full circle. Yes, it's very. It's kind of um, a tricky one, isn't it? I know. It's um, God. I tell you, being a, you know, when you're younger and you're, you're, you know, like I was always a fan. You, you thought, God, being a musician must just be the best thing in the world. But then you realise that it's, it's a. It is. Yeah, it is. It is at that point in time. Yeah, of course it is. It's, uh, it's the best place to be. Going up on stage and showing off. Fantastic, you know. People, people are looking up at you, and you, you're looking down, going, "Yeah, I'm, you know." It's a great feeling. It's a great, it's a great place to be. But you've really got it. It's, it's 
and over the years, it's, it's, you have to temper it with, with the, you know, <laughs> the reality of the whole fucking business that you're in. Yes, absolutely. It's a tricky one. I mean, if you could have just said something to your like a sixteen or eighteen year old self starting out, mm-hmm. is there anything that you would have kind of just whispered in their ear, even though they might have completely ignored you? But if you just thought, yeah, there was a couple of words of you know words of wisdom. Yeah, well, just to, uh, yeah, yeah, you, you know, from what you've experienced and, and the things you've learned over the decades, I just wondered if there was a few key bits that you would have just thought, oh, yeah, that would have... I think the two pieces of, yeah, yeah, there's a, like a maxim or something, you mean, like an, some sort of aphorism that you can... Yeah. I, well, I would, what, I would say to, what I would say to young kids nowadays is don't get in debt and stay in tune. That's basically my advice to any guitar player. You know, that's about it, really. Yes. <laughs> yes. Stay out of debt and change, stay in tune. <laughs> you know, because there's, no, there's nothing worse than fucking listening to a band where it's out of tune, you know? No. There's nothing worse than listening to rock music that's out of tune, I might add, <laughs> you know? Yes, and have you? I mean, when when you sort of you 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 still sort of play the guitar, is there still things that you're trying to experiment with or trying? Or mm-hmm. do you do you have occasionally hear a mm-hmm. you know an old jazz player or an old blues player or even a modern? Yeah, very t- much. And yeah, think, God, how, so. I just wonder if you still get kind of those, you know, moments where you just think, well, actually, I must try and learn that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the whole the whole metal period of metal music. I don't know when it was. Was it the eighties? The bands like Iron Maiden and stuff like that, and all through that whole, that whole, that whole um, period of music passed me by. I never, I never heard any metal bands. I never, I thought, I thought music, the, the rock music had died completely in the UK during the eighties. I wasn't, or whatever it was. You know, I just, I thought, well, there is no more rock music. You know, music's gone. It's, it's become more. You know, all the, all the styles that you talked about earlier on. Um, the indie stuff and all that, you know, like so rock music for me, heavy rock music seemed to me to have died until I realised that it had only died in the UK and everywhere else on the planet. It was absolutely monstrous. Yes, you know, Brazil, America, you know, Germany, Russia, whatever else, Japan, you know, all these Schenker, all these bands, all these metal bands, rock bands. I thought, I thought, yeah, but so. The idea when I when I started playing again and, and what you were talking about a moment or two ago, uh, learning some of that stuff and, and listening to some of the, the scales and the, the 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 type of music that's that, that was played then is a bit of a novelty for me, and I found myself kind of going back and learning some of that stuff, some of that um, classical sort of scales that people play that you hear, but you hear Muse doing it a little bit now. And things like that. You hear that kind of scale. You hear like bands like um, I don't know, you hear Ramstein do it a little bit. I suppose, uh, yeah. Yes. Well, I think there was a really big explosion in Dream LA. Dream Dream Theater. Dream Theater are a kind of interesting band, but very you know it's very technical. It's very highly highly skilled technical players. You know, which which is I can go I can go there so far, and I, I know that I've really not got the technique to kind of get me any further so I kind of you know I know where to draw the line so to speak but as I said earlier for me technique was never really it was never really the be all and end all for me of how to of, of playing the guitar uh, especially as I said when I listened to Zappa and yes. I realised that you, you can just 
you can just make the guitar do whatever you want it to do and it will create um, an emotion, it will create an atmosphere. One note, two notes are as good as 15, you know. Yes, absolutely. Well, there were those bands, I suppose there was Bon Jovi, um, Guns N' Roses that came up in the 80s. and into yeah. Aerosmith. Yeah, exactly. All those kind of bands kind of passed me by. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, didn't, I, wasn't, I never really, and I never really liked what they were doing. It was a style of music that never appealed to me at all. It felt pompous. It felt pretentious in a way. It felt it felt contrived uh, a lot of the time. And um, so yeah, it didn't it didn't quite it didn't quite do it for me. Yes, but when you I'm more of a grunge fan. I mean, sorry to interrupt you. Oh yeah. I mean, what what's appealed to me over over the, the period more recently? I say more recently, probably in the last twenty years or so, is. Um, is grunge bands, you know, like Nirvana, the Soundgarden in particular. Soundgarden are one of the, my most favourite bands of all time. They just have just a phenomenal, they're just some, I don't know what it is, they've just got it. And the other band that, that I'm the only, that I'm the only band that I listen to anymore probably is Radiohead. Yeah. You know, it's about, yeah. it's about all I listen to nowadays. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, when because you, was your kind of your one of your favorite albums? Was it the first one you did, Framed? Was that the one that you would yeah. you would say was? And yeah, then... it kind of epitomized the it, it, it captured it captured the, the 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 spark that was there in Sab from the from the beginning. It's got it there. You get it. You get it throughout the band's career, off and on, off and on. But it, I don't think it was as as, as consistently good as it was with friends. Yes, yes. I just wonder, will you be kind of, I know because people love anniversaries, but that will be 50 years old next year. Will you be doing, <laughs> will you be sort of, I guess people are going to be wanting to um, highlight that, aren't they, as a sort of, they highlight anything. They will, yeah. I don't really get into all of that stuff. I'm not really one for celebrating. No. Anniversaries or celebrating, you know, Every year they have this Sab Rock thing in Glasgow, which celebrates kind of all things to do with Sab, but it, it's for a good cause. It goes to the Sick Children's Hospital in Glasgow. So I've supported it off and on over the years and um, turned up and played and did, you know, performed at it. But, um, but no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not really one for, for, for looking back or conjuring up. Did you, uh, in, did you enjoy that period? Did you enjoy working in the studio? Did you find different producers yeah. and... You know, different. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I loved, I loved being in the studio. It was just an excuse to play. I mean, I say most of the sad recordings were done live. Yes. And you did know, we you set up as a live band? And you worked with that American producer, didn't you, Shell Tammy? Shell Tammy, who'd worked with the Who. Yes. And I think he'd had done something quite well, quite good with the Who, and somebody suggested, obviously, the record company, the Phonogram. It was, I think, at the time, who, who we were signed to. They probably recommended them to say, "Well, here's somebody that can get you a a hit sound or something like that, perhaps." But it sounded dreadful, really. We all came away from the first sort of sessions thinking that um, this doesn't sound anything like what we normally sound like. And um, and I don't know, I don't know if it was us or if it was him or what, but it got shelved again, and we had to sort of look for someone else. Yes. Difficult, isn't it? God, yeah. I mean, the complexity of making the sound and getting the um, the right sonic quality is probably incredibly hard, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 
tricky. Yes. I guess the material that you recorded on that was still kind of vaguely recycled or reused for the next album. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. It was it was it was just re-recorded again. We just re did we did it somewhere else with someone else producing. I don't know who produced from then on. Yes. Um but um but I was all I never ever felt and I've mentioned this a few times in interviews, I've never ever felt that any of Saab's albums sound the way I would have wanted them to sound. Not that I'm a producer, but they just never really had the raw power and guitar energy that that I was hearing elsewhere and I thought we should have had. And I never, you know, I just always felt something was compromised, you know, that um, the keys were kind of prominent when they shouldn't have been and the guitars were hidden away when they shouldn't have been. And it was all, you know, I wanted to be, as I said earlier, I wanted to be Led Zeppelin. You know, I wanted us to have that real heavy rock sound that was there, you know. And and of course, we kind of drifted in and, we, you know, occasionally we we, we 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 got to that sort of sound, but for me for me it was you know, more more like what we're talking about now. You know, say like full circle when you listen to what we did, what I did with um, what we're doing now with the Orphans of the Ash. Yes, it's much 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 more. You know where I want to be. You know musically as a guitarist as a songwriter. Yeah, amazing. Well, look, I really hope you know the album. You managed to get the album next year and the novel, which yeah, will be. Well. The fantastic! You've got a novel as well, which must be. Will you be? Yeah. Um, have you? Is that going to be self-produced, or will you be? You know, getting the novel. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a, I've got an editor, a publisher, a guy called Nick Odd, A W D E, who, who, who we worked with recently on a, on a, an installation festival, a music installation festival in Morecambe, where we provided a, a piece of music and he provided a video. Uh, it's one of the songs actually from the album, but we haven't let anyone hear it except him to use for this art installation, one of these kind of art installation things. Yes. Um, and it's a, it's a lovely piece of music. It's a lovely song as well. But, um, yeah, so so he's he initially contacted me because of the fact that he's a, a writer himself and a publisher and has his own publishing, publishing company. So that's how we kind of got involved. So, yeah. He's lined up, you know, when the book's ready, he'll be the man to, to kind of uh, release it and, and, and do all that. Fantastic. Well, look, best of luck with mm. that. That sounds a fantastic thing Thank to you. have been working on. And um, just so pleased that you've got, you know, projects that you're, rather than always looking back, Absolutely. At, you know, you're looking forward, which I think is really brilliant. So, look, well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate that because, um, sure, yes. Yeah, yeah, all good, David. Nice to, nice to have a chat with you. It's a good yeah. long chat, but it was really, really pleasant. Yes. Well, look, take care of yourself and, um, yeah, I yes, do. and enjoy the winter. And it's kind of, let you know, me know. Let me know how it goes. I will, and I'll um, yeah. I can always give you, you know, send you a link, and then you could put it on your, you know, Facebook page. Fantastic. Yeah. Look, take care, and all the best for the future. Okay. Okay. Cheers. Cheers, David. Thanks bye for bye. Bye. Bye now. Bye. And that, dear listener, is not how you end the conversation. But I like leaving that in because um, I enjoy the slightly sort of awkwardness of myself, which I, <laughs> I often listen to. Anyway, a massive thank you to Zell Clemenson for giving me the time for that interview. Um, yes, as he said, we got a new single and album, hopefully, and a book, and lots more. But uh, yeah, Orphans of the Ash. Anyway, if you want to contact me for some exciting and nice reason, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show, keep it positive. 
And, um, yes, all these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes or Podbean. Do check them out. Anyway, have a great week and stay safe.